But great to be back this week and back at it. God's doing so many wonderful things in the life of our church and in and through many of you. And if you're new or visiting, we're thankful to have you here with us. Uh, It's a joy to be together uh, to study God's good word. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the letter of Ephesians. You'll find it towards the back of your Bibles in the New Testament. uh, Written by Paul to the Christians in the region of Ephesus. Uh, It's a wonderful book in Holy Scripture that we've had the privilege of of being in for a while now. This is our 44th sermon in this letter, uh, and it's just a joy to slow down and really preach God's Word faithfully, to come to understand it fully and rightly, that we would submit ourselves to it in every way. Um, today, our focus will be on verse 17 through 19 in a sermon that I've titled, No Longer Walking as Unbelievers Do. As you turn there, let me help you uh, set the table for Paul's next focus here in his letter. In the opening narrative of this creation, we read in Genesis that God made mankind in his own image and commissioned mankind to exercise dominion over the whole creation in order to manifest God's glory in it, to make much of his holy name. But man fell into sin. And fell short of the glory of God, as Paul declares in Romans 3.23. The whole creation, therefore, was subjected to futility, as Paul declares in Romans 8.20. Scripture is clear, church, to teach us that man's condition in sin is futile, fallen, alienated from that which is life, from that which is God himself. As Paul transitions to a more rapid-fire list of exhortations, Indicative commands in the coming verses throughout the rest of this letter. He starts this section of chapter 4 by calling the believers to put their former ways of living behind them and to put on their new ways in Christ. It is in Christ alone that we have new life and the power and even the will to live righteously. See with me this morning that We whom God has graciously given saving faith, we who are Christ's body, we who are the church, are God's ordained testimony of new life in Christ, as it is through our unity in Christ and our proclamation of truth and love that the world will see His glory. And according to His perfect will, many come to believe in Him. This is why our unity as a church, our maturity in Christ's likeness is so critical, as Paul has been emphasizing in the first 16 verses of chapter 4. Paul now turns to a practical outworking of the gospel as it's transforming us. Essentially, Paul is going to really focus on what it means that we, the church, are created in Christ Jesus for good works, as Paul said in Ephesians 2 verse 10. I'm excited for what God has in store for us in the coming weeks. Um, It is filled with practical application for what life in Christ needs to look like as we put away all that is connected to our former state in unbelief. Let me ask you, do you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you trusted your life to Him, whereby you do not belong to yourself any longer? He is the Lord of your life. Do you belong to Christ, who is your Savior from your sin, the Lord of your life? 
Church, this is Jesus. This is God the Son. This needs not be something flippant, something passing. This needs to overwhelm us. The, the, the vastness, the majesty, the holiness of our Lord that we have been invited near, made holy in Him. Move to see our former state and to move away from it. Hear Paul's exhortation this morning was we are to no longer walk as we used to when we were dead in sin. That's the old body of sin that's been paid for. It's been redeemed. Now because we're still in the flesh, we can still choose to go back to the old playbook. And so Paul brings warning that is needed for us today. And so let's look closely and lean in as we do this morning to God's good word. Verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. We read the rest of the passage. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and practice every kind of impurity. As we move into verse 17, first see with me that Paul speaks with the authority of an apostle. When he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord. Understand that his authority is given to him from the Lord directly. He is a direct representative of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And he speaks with his full authority. This is why we listen to Paul with the utmost respect and obedience. Church, he is delivering the very commands and words of our mighty God. Do you you need direction in your life? Are you looking for answers? You need the Word of God to speak into your life, to correct your futile thinking, to mature you in truth, in a sea of deception, in the constant struggle of our flesh to do what pleases us instead of what pleases God. We need to look no further than the Holy Word of God. The focus of Paul in this section is on our daily mode of operation. The word he uses is that of walking. Paul focuses on our walking, not just here, but we're going to see this in coming verses like chapter 5, verse 2, chapter 5, verse 8, chapter 5, verse 15. And Paul alone does not speak in these ways. No, God has charged us throughout Scripture, the people of God, to walk in a God-honoring way from the beginning. Consider a few examples, just a few. In Genesis 5, 22, we read that Enoch walked with God. In Genesis 6, 9, we read that Noah walked with God. Who are you walking with, church, in these days that God has given you under the sun? God calls us to walk in the presence, the mighty presence of God in such a way that He is honored. Listen to Genesis 17, 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you 
and may multiply you greatly. Deuteronomy 8.6 So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. Are you walking in the ways of God in these days? Are you fearing Him alone? Not fearing COVID, not fearing fires, not fearing election results, fearing God alone. Reverent to Him, trusting Him, obedient to Him. He is our God, church. We are His people. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. I'm praying that, that in these days, when it's very tempting to be plugged in to the counsel of the wicked, to the way of sinners, to the seed of scoffers, that instead we're plugged in to the Word of God, to the power of God, to the will of God, trusting Him, honoring Him day and night. Church, the people of God are to live our lives in a way that honors God. We're, we are to reveal the work of our Lord in our lives by walking, talking, and living out what God has done and is doing. As we will see in a little bit, Paul's reference to walking is not just what we do. It's also about what we say. It's about what we think. We feel what, what our hearts are doing. And so therefore, we are to not walk in our former state of sin, but to walk in a way, to live in a way that reveals who we are in Christ. And so let me ask you before we dive in, how are you walking lately? How are you living what are you doing with the days that God has graciously given you? It's a matter of the utmost importance, church. Christian, are you guilty of keeping your faith to yourself? Have you been listening to what the world is telling you to do more than what God tells you to do? The world says, keep your faith, keep your testimony, keep your convictions, for truth and your God-honoring righteousness, keep it to yourself. The Word of God says to no longer walk in sin and death, but to walk and think and speak boldly in Christ, who is life. I'm excited to mine down into this with you over the coming weeks. Let's see what Paul wants us to tune into here in verse 17 and through 19, is how... 
He's imploring us not to walk in our former ways. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. No longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, as unbelievers do. Right out of the gate, I want to point out that this is the opposite counsel we receive from our society. Our society says, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Right? You ever heard that? It's an encouragement to conform to the people group whom you find yourself among. We see variations of this play out in a way to give excuse essentially to the flesh to be fleshly in whatever environment we're in. Right? We're kind of throwing it to the wind. When in Rome. Or how about this one? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Think about that with me for a moment. While often used in a fun or playful way, this phrase is essentially an endorsement of licentious living. It basically says, while you're in the city of sin, be sinful. Have at it. Just be sure to not share with those outside sin city what you did while you were here. Conform. Enjoy the longings of your flesh when among the people who don't care how you act. Who don't care if you act that way or this way. Paul says here in our text that even though you may still be a Gentile, don't act like a Gentile in spiritual practice now that you belong to Christ. In other words, even if your family by birth was guilty of cursing like sailors throughout the day around a bowl of cereal, and that was acceptable among them, it is no longer acceptable for you who belong to Christ. Even though your birth father says it's okay to do this or to do that, you should obey your heavenly father who says what you should do or not do. In other words, now that you've been transformed by Christ into a new man, no longer act as the old man who is dead and enslaved to sin. To really help us see the layers by which we're no longer to walk, Paul spends the next couple verses breaking them down. <clears throat> to help unpack verse 17 through 19, I want to do something. I want to show you an order here that shows some progression that I think is helpful for us. So I'm going to cherry pick all that Paul says here. I'm going to reorder it and kind of help us walk through it. Consider verse 17 through 19 organized this way. For those outside of Christ and still dead in sin, our hardness of heart means that we are darkened in our understanding. Which means we are ignorant and futile in our minds. Which means we choose sin over obedience to God. Which means then, therefore, we are alienated from life with God. This shows itself out in how we live as we are callous to what is righteous and God-honoring. And instead, we give ourselves to sensuality and greed to practice every kind of impurity. 
all the elements of what Paul is saying, we are to no longer walk in this, our former state, those who are outside of Christ, or we who are in Christ, he's talking about who we were before Christ. And it starts with the heart. So, so let's, go, let's look there. Verse 18, the third part of verse 18, he says, due to their hardness of heart. As a consequence of the fall of man, Adam, our federal head, representing us, chose sin. Therefore, every person born into the world, every person in the human race, born of man and woman, into the world is morally corrupt, is spiritually dead, fallen in nature. Doctrine that we, the title of the doctrine we use to define this is total depravity. A concise way to think of total depravity is the state of being spiritually dead. You might be alive, well, thinking, doing, but you're spiritually dead. It's not just that some parts of us are sinful and other parts are pure. Rather, every part of our being is affected by sin. Our intellects, our emotions, our desires, our hearts, the center of our desires, our decision-making processes, our goals, our motives, even our physical bodies are depraved. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately corrupt who can understand it jeremiah 17 9 in genesis 6 5 the lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually see evil there not as like sorcery magic evil while that's included it's anything that is not to the glory of God is evil, is sin, is wicked. In passages like these, Holy Scripture is not denying that human beings, apart from Christ, dead in sin, in human society, cannot do good in human society in some sense. It's not saying that. It is denying that they can do anything spiritually good or anything in terms of good in relationship to the God. Their heart is not pure. It is hard. It is wicked through and through. Serious diagnosis of Paul in Romans 2.5. Because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of, of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Mankind deserves God's righteous wrath because of our unbelief in Him, because of our hard heart, because we don't trust Him, we don't love Him. Praise God that it was His will to graciously save many of us from this condition. Amen? How does God save us? It starts with the heart. We must be given a new heart. Said another way, the heart of stone must be regenerated into a heart of flesh. What was not spiritual must become spiritual, spiritually alive. This is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, who breathes life into that which is formerly dead in sin. This sovereign work of God and regeneration was spoken of in the prophecy of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Speaking of God's work in His elect, I will give you a new heart 
A new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus is clear to say in John 3, 3, speaking to Nicodemus about what is true faith, what is true belonging to God. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, there's no amount of human knowledge or reasoning that will bring someone to saving faith. Only new birth. You need a change in your heart. God to give you a new heart. What is spiritually dead must be made spiritually alive. When Jesus says, unless one is born again, the word again here is more literally translated from above or top to bottom. Unless someone is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Only God can save us. Salvation begins with a heart change that only God can give you. The late theologian and pastor A.W. Pink said it this way. I love this quote. Probably heard it from you before. The new birth is an imperative necessity because the natural man is altogether devoid of spiritual life. It is not that he's ignorant or needs instruction It is not that he's feeble and needs invigorating. It is not that he's sickly and needs doctoring. His case is far, far worse. He is dead in trespasses and sins. This is no poetical figure of speech. It is a solemn reality, little as it is perceived by the majority of people. The sinner is spiritually lifeless and needs quickening. He is a spiritual corpse and needs bringing from death into life. He is a member of the old creation, which is under the curse of God. And unless he has made a new creation in Christ, he will lie under the curse, under that curse to all eternity. What the natural man needs above everything else is life, divine life. As birth is the gateway to life, he must be born again and Except he be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is final. You see why I wanted to start with the heart in the midst of Paul's description. Not to say that his order is wrong. I just want to be helpful in walking us through this passage. Paul is clear to speak of our dead and depraved condition and sin outside of Christ. He does this by speaking of a hard heart, a heart of stone. A spiritually dead heart. This condition of mankind is our most serious problem. And while there are many we all know who are physically alive and well, they are spiritually dead because they have a hard heart. Can I just say clearly, lovingly, they're not doing okay. They're not. They're a spiritual zombie. They're going through the motions They're earning degrees. They're producing things at work. They're raising children, but they are spiritually dead. That's not not doing okay. 
We have to see the indictment. We have to see the reality of what it means to be dead in sin. What it means to have a hard heart. A spiritually lifeless heart. See with me, church, that Paul is emphasizing that we who are saved by Christ should no longer walk, live, like we once did when our hearts were hard and full of unbelief. We'll come back to this. Let's see what else Paul says about our former condition as he moves from the heart to the mind. Three references to the depravity of our minds in this passage. Second part of verse 17, he speaks of the futility of their minds. Verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding. In verse 18, the second part, because of the ignorance that is in them. The mind, church, is critical to how we walk. To not know God is to not have God. To not know God is to reject God instead of receive Him. It is to honor God that we must do. Our thinking is surely a central part of our living, or as Paul says here, our walking. See with me that Paul is clear to make this important point elsewhere in Scripture and many of his other letters. Titus chapter 1, 15, To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Their mind is defiled. Romans 8, 7 and 8, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Colossians 1.21 And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. What is amazing about the mind when enslaved to sin is that we know God is real but we still choose to reject Him. Paul speaks most famously about this in the first chapter of Romans. Look with me at Romans one. 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Do they know God is real? Yes. 
because God has clearly made himself revealed. He's shown himself to them. His attributes, his power, divine nature have been clearly perceived. Not, not foggy, clearly. Since the creation of the world. They're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let's be clear. All of mankind is aware of God. They know God is real. This means that while many people call themselves atheist, someone who doesn't believe God is real, Deep down, they know He is. They just are choosing to suppress the truth, as Paul clearly states here in Romans 1, with great denial and rejection of the truth. What is interesting is that even the demons acknowledge the existence of God. James says this in James 2.19, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's not a good indictment on you who call yourself an atheist that the demon is actually processing who God is better than you are. Why? Because demons know about God and they believe what they know about Him to be true so much so that they shudder at what they know to be true of God. But they do not have saving faith. They do not know Him personally. They do not trust Him. You have to be truly darkened in your understanding to see the beauty of God, the power of the Almighty in creation, and to not want to know Him or obey Him. So it's not that unbelievers do not know that God is real. They know. But their thinking is futile. It's darkened. It's ignorant. As Paul makes clear, in the futility of their minds, they're darkened in their understanding because of the ignorance that is in them. The Greek word for ignorance here, a better translation of that word that, that we read as ignorance, doesn't mean a lack of awareness as it commonly means. The word here is intended to, to say that there is a moral or spiritual blindness. So when you're interacting with a saved person and they're utterly rejecting the truth of God or the goodness of God or their desperate need for Jesus alone, don't be surprised by this. Why? For the same reason that you're not surprised that a drunk person is unable to have a logical or reasonable conversation with you. They're corrupted. The unbeliever is corrupted in their mind. They're unable to process the truth they know, and so they reject the goodness and beauty of God. 
As a result, they do not glorify him as they should. As a result, they turn to idolatry, as Paul states here in Romans 1. Exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images, for counterfeit gods. Paul's plea is that we who belong to Christ should no longer walk in the ways of our former futile, darkened, ignorant thinking. We'll come back to this. Church, see with me that Paul is emphasizing that who that we who are saved by Christ should no longer walk as we once did when our minds were darkened and ignorant in sin. Let's see the, the fallen state further as Paul continues to say those with hard hearts and dark minds are, as we read in the second part of verse 18, we are alienated from the life of God. Those with hard hearts and dark minds are alienated from life of God. From the life of God. <clears throat> we are alienated in our sin from God. Why? Because He is pure and holy. Minor prophet Habakkuk says in chapter 1, verse 13, You who are of pure eyes, then to see evil and cannot look at wrong. He's holy, pure. Because of our guilt and sin, we are rightly alienated from him apart from Christ's redemption. See this point made in many scriptures. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Because what is holy will not fellowship, commune with what is sinful. Or it ceases to be holy. James 4.4 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 1 John 1.6 If we say we have fellowship with Him while we, here it is again, walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The punishment for mankind's sin was death, but it was also separation from the holy God. Genesis, the Genesis account at the fall Chapter 3, verse 24, it says he drove out the man. God pushed Adam and Eve out of the garden. At the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Our brother in Christ, Scott Waterman, who taught this last Wednesday at midweek, said it well. He said, being free from punishment is not our highest goal. 
It's not the ultimate prize. Amazing as pardon from sin and punishment is, if we're not brought into unending right relationship with God, then we are still missing the prize of all prizes. Simply said, we need to be reconciled to God. Church, there is nothing worse than to be alienated from God, who is life, who is love, who is peace. How much we needed Christ to set us free from our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. I pray that our time on Wednesday has resonated with you as much as it has with me this week. The joy of our reconciliation to God. I pray that if you are not yet reconciled to God, that you see this is your greatest need in this life. Paul's plea is that we who belong to Christ should no longer walk in the ways we did when we were alienated from life with God. Because we've been given life with God in our salvation. Why would we choose to walk like we did when we were separated from Him? We'll come back to this. Paul's not done reminding the believers of their condition when they were dead in sin, apart from God. He continues in verse 19 to say, Those who have hearts of stone, those who are futile, darkened, and ignorant in their minds, those who are alienated from God, they've become callous. What does it mean to be callous? It means that you cease to feel. It's apathy. You don't care. It's enslavement. We need to see the effects of the enslaved heart and mind in sin. It's callous. It's apathetic. This is one of my biggest prayers for you who are younger. Children, junior hires, high schoolers, college students. One of the biggest things that God's doing in the emergence of your new faith is to break down your callousness, your apathy, to help you care about the little things, to see them as opportunities to glorify God, to honor God, that you would not be dismissive, that you would not be flippant, casual, not be quick to run to the things of the world, but you love to run to the things of God more and more. It's really interesting to see apathy in everyday life as I think it helps us consider what it means to be spiritually callous. A university professor once described the incoming freshman class by saying they remind me of passengers on the Titanic. They know the ship is going down, but all they want are first class seats as it sinks. I remember reading a quote from a um, college student, 
during the Persian Gulf War, a student was asked about their plans for the night. And they said, I'm going to go back to my room. I'm going to pop some popcorn. I'm going to watch the war on, on the couch. Consider the numbness we see in testimonies like this. And where is that playing out still? Where is callousness at work in our lives in ways it shouldn't any longer? Those who are dead in sin don't see the power of the gospel, the goodness of God's grace that compels their action to righteous living and sacrificial love. They don't walk in the ways of God because they're callous. Because they're enslaved. John 8.34 Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Those who practice sin are unrepentant. They they show no, no conviction. They're apathetic in their regard to the holiness of God. And what he's due. Remember Paul's famous words in Ephesians 2.3. Among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. The callousness Paul is speaking of here. Is a true inability to honor God. It's depravity. The corrupted mind, the will, the emotions, the flesh. Our depravity recognizes that even the apparent good things unregenerate man does are ruined by sin because they're not done in faith to God, to the glory of God. Romans 3, 9-12, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Many people, myself included, were taught growing up that man had the ability, that we were free enough to choose God. And believe in his gospel. But as we've seen, as we continue to see in Holy Scripture, man's will is not free apart from Christ, apart from God's regeneration in our hearts, in our minds. Why? Because we're enslaved to sin. The will is bound in sin. It just knows sin, it does sin, it wants sin. We're callous. Apart from Christ's atonement, the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Spirit's regeneration, apart from God's saving grace. As if this was not enough, Paul's not done yet describing our former state in sin, as he says, they've become callous and given themselves to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. First, sensuality is a a very real problem for those dead in sin. Did you know that sensuality is one of the only sins listed in just about every list of sins in the New Testament? Mark 7, 
Romans 1, Romans 13, Galatians 5, to name a few. Places where sin is listed, plethora of sin. There is a universal reality that the unrepentant sinner is given over to trying to please the senses in a sinful way. It's what we call hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure, self-indulgence. When you get frustrated that something's not about to go your way, what, what you're warring with there is what, was, what I thought was going to please me, what, what I was chasing, now that's not going to happen, so now I'm upset. I mean, it plays in little ways. It's the pursuit of being satisfied by our senses. It's the ethical theory that pleasure to the senses is the highest good. It's the secular view of the highest aim of mankind. Hedonism is heathenism. We've got to see how anti-God it is. It couldn't be further from God's will for our lives. 2 Timothy 3.4, Paul warned that in the last days men would be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Surely we're in those days. Surely this is the pursuit of a lost society that says, pursue whatever makes you feel good. The thought is, who are we to say you shouldn't do this or that? While there are many examples of gross wickedness by which people pursue sinful pleasure to their senses, there are also common sneaky ways that we buy into this line of thinking. Look no further than the very thing that commonly motivates many parents in the raising of their children. When they say, I just want my son or daughter to be happy. What are they really saying there? Likely what they're really saying is, I just I want them to find a way to have their senses appeal to so that they're happy. I want parents, I want you to see what you're buying into when you think that way. Instead, the longing of our hearts, redeemed in Christ, is I want my children to be holy. I want them to honor God with their lives. I want them to find their joy in the Lord, not in their senses. Church, you have to see the problem with this is that it guides us, it it instructs us, it permits us, it makes way for the things we do, the things we allow, the things we prioritize. Slow with me for a moment to consider how each of us might get caught up in a mindset or a way of walking that is motivated by, our, by being pleased in our senses. Consider the following senses and how we might be guilty of sinfully pursuing these instead of righteously pursuing them. The five senses, sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch. Let's talk about them individually for a moment. Sight. What are you pursuing with your eyes? How are you letting the old man, the carnal man or woman, look to be pleased with the senses of your sight? Do you see how 
by running to those things, you're abandoning being pleased in God and you're turning to sensuality. What about hearing? What are you listening to? What about smell? What selfless act or service are you avoiding because selfishly you won't like the smell? What about comfort, satisfaction? Are you pursuing with taste? How are you trying to please the senses with what you eat or drink? What about touch? What are you pursuing with your body that's dishonoring to God? These are God-given vehicles that we are to steward in a way that honors Him. We are to be satisfied in Him above all else. Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. The key is that our senses are satisfied in the Lord, church. When we turn to Him, when we turn from Him to the creation to satisfy us in these things, we're always left wanting more. We're not ever satisfied by the creation. Blaise Pascal has this famous quote, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it. The same desire of both attended with different views. They will never take the least step to this object. This is the motive of every human action, of every man, even of those who hang themselves. He adds, but these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. This is what Paul's getting at when he says, in sin they've become callous, giving themselves to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What does greedy to practice every kind of impurity look like? Uh, I'm reading uh, a book with the guys I'm discipling right now, uh, called Counterfeit Gods. Um, and just this week, we slowed to consider those whose society would deem the most successful and how utterly insufficient their treasures, accomplishments, or status are for their lives. Literally, we read like two pages of the wealthiest people just through the, the, the crash in the market that happened in the 80s and how many of those people killed themselves like that because of a turn in their wealth. They were wealthy beyond what you and I know or could even imagine. And it changed to, the, to even any degree, and they ended their lives over it. How unsatisfactory was that wealth if, if, if you're just done at the change of it? I mean, actors or athletes, we see pursue Endless sexual encounters, even some getting bored with endless sexual encounters and moving to bestiality, moving to atrocious things. Why? Because I'm not satisfied any longer 
in some of the things that we think, man, if I could only be like that, if I could only have that, then. No, you wouldn't be satisfied. You can't be satisfied in it. That's the point. Teenagers who give themselves to drugs in order to gain acceptance or to try to release themselves from life's pressures. Gluttons who eat themselves into heart failure, diabetes, into impacted living and early death. Men and women who turn to the flesh to satisfy their cravings instead of looking uh, they, they then look to porn or, or, or watching media that's full of sexual immorality for fun, for entertainment, for relief. I could go on and on. When we look to be pleased by the senses with sinful things, momentary things, we're left to be unsatisfied and miserable. We're so desperate for God alone to satisfy us and be the reason why we do what we do or why we don't do why we don't do. Thankfully, church, there's good news. Let me remind you of the words of Paul in chapter 2. Ephesians 2. I'll just read 1 through 5. Let it wash over you in like manner for where we're at today. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. Amen? The good news is we no longer have to walk in the former ways of our sin because Christ has saved us. Set us free from our bondage. I love how Peter says it in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You were ransomed, purchased. Your freedom from your futile enslavement was purchased. It was purchased not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Church, this is good news. Because we're no longer enslaved to our sin in Christ. We're no longer hard in the heart our thinking is no longer futile ignorant or darkened we no longer are callous or given to sensuality and greedy practice of every kind of impurity no we are able to walk in a way that honors god because of his saving grace in our life because of the power of the holy spirit that's now at work in us we can now be dependent on god satisfied in God. Why would we go back to the pig trough? 
Oh, I pray that some of you are overwhelmed with conviction this morning because the area by which you are giving yourself to sensuality or greedy for, for things that are impure or, or you're thinking that God is showing it to you. This is that God-ordained moment for you to flee from that, to confess it as sin. Young men, how many of our older men do I need to walk across the stage who have said 20 years of my life have been jacked up because of the practices I wouldn't put away when I was young? Put it away, young man. Young women, put it away. Put away the thinking of the world that leaves you so entrapped, so worried, so wound up, and, and see who you are in Christ. And men and women, maybe it's taken you 20 years. Today is the day to put it behind you, to ask for true accountability, to put it away, to cancel the service, to do what's needed. Jesus said it'd be better for you to cut your arm off. He's trying to tell you how serious it is. Paul is saying, don't walk that way anymore. Don't, don't go and put the shackles back on. And why drag the chains anymore? Don't do it. Church, I love you. Don't do it. Put it away. Let's move forward in Christ. We must no longer walk in these ways. For the power of God is at work in us. As Scott taught us on Wednesday, we are reconciled to God. You, children of God, are reconciled to God. The Holy God is now in fellowship with you. You are victorious in Christ. Stand with me. I want to read Romans 6 as we go. This this whole speaking is is clearly here in Romans 6 in like manner to our passage today. I'll probably touch on it again next week. Let's let God's Word wash over us again as we prepare to respond in prayer and worship. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if you have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Your members there, that, that's talking about our senses, our eyes, our, 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 our mouths, our, our, our touch. What are you doing with that stuff? Our members. Don't present it to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Present our members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are no longer under the law, but under grace. Amen? If you have not confessed your sin before the Holy God and trusted your life to Him, to believe in Jesus alone as Lord and Savior, repent of your sin and believe in Jesus and be saved. None of this is possible without salvation, without death to self and life in Christ. If you have questions about what that is or what that means, we'd love to meet with you, talk with you, walk with you. For those of you who have truly repented and believed, then no longer live like the old you, enslaved to sin and dead to sin. Walk as you are, alive in Christ and satisfied in the one true God. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the blessing it is to have your holy word, to study it, to grow in it. I thank you for the journey, the journey of so many in this room, the diversity, the, the real stuff that they've come out of, the sin, the addiction, the lostness, the hopelessness. I thank you for restoration of marriages, that marriages have gone to places they never dreamed they could be. Open conversations between children and their parents to lean into Christ, to break down barriers, to pursue holiness. Real confession of sin by those who know you and belong to you. Why? Because they hate their sin. Because they don't want it anymore. They want to know you and walk with you and honor you. You are awesome God and what you've done you are worthy to be praised you are worthy of all of our lives be honored by the men and women of Disciples Church this week as we go as we serve as we testify as we study your word and pray as we fight sin. We love you.